You are listening to Aeneer's Podcast. The topic for today's discussion is What the Frack? Joining us from Cowan is Mark Bianchi, Equity Research, Oil Field Services and Equipment, Wes Atkins, CEO, U.S. Rail Logistics, and Thomas Coleman, Director of Business Development at Shale Rail. Podcast is brought to you by the NEFT family of companies, Northeast Freight Transfer and Shale Rail. Together, we are rail strong. Additional funding brought to you by AMTR, American Truck and Rail Audit. Don't forget to register today for our fall virtual conference at nears.org, N-E-A-R-S dot Should you have any questions, please reach out to us at questions at nears.org. Individual panels and email addresses will be found at the end of this podcast. Thanks for joining in. Mark, feel free to take hey. it away. Thank you. Great. Well, well, thanks for having me. Um, it's uh, it's been a, a roller coaster in in energy, really, for the last uh, call it six years um, when OPEC uh, waged the war on U.S. shale, uh, essentially trying to take back their market share that they were losing from uh, from the growth of of U.S. production. Um, we saw that with their uh, failure to come to a conclusion at the end of 2014, and uh, that kind of kicked off this this downturn that we've been in. Um, um, earlier this year, uh, kind of around the time that the, the, the concerns were coming out around COVID, um, we saw that OPEC again uh, sort of tried to tried to start another war and, uh, you know, with increasing production in, in April. Um, finally, they did come to some kind of conclusion and, uh, and they do have this, this program that they're executing right now, which has supported the market, um, but again has kind of... Uh, caused another another war and another down downturn in prices um, so ultimately what we think happens as a result of all of this is OPEC does take back their share and and the US uh, sort of lives at a, a lower for longer level of production um, so that means you know lower oil production uh, lower number of rigs working lower uh, spending by all the EMPs uh, and you know everything that goes along with that. So frac sand is obviously one of them, but everything else that uh, that the oil field consumes would be at a lower level. Um, where we go from here, um, as I mentioned, you know we'll be at a lower level, but uh, somewhat increased from uh, the the lows that we saw in the second quarter, really in in May and June, where um, things really got to the to the worst level that. Uh, that we will see. Um, EMPs are increasing activity uh, gradually through year end. Um, they've all kind of talked about trying to get to a level that maintains their uh, production. So sort of staying flat because shale oil declines, you constantly need to drill to keep your production flat. So they're really trying to solve for this level of drilling and completion activity that keeps production flat at fourth quarter 20 exit rates. What that all means is we have a gradual increase through year end and probably another um, 10 to 15% increase in oil field spending in 2021, uh, just to kind of keep production flat. And then uh, it probably stays pretty steady from there. Historically, uh, EMP companies, the companies that are you know, drilling the wells and, and hiring all the oil field services, um, they would typically spend uh, about in line with what their cash flow was. So if the commodity price went up, they would increase their spending. What happened over this past six year downturn, uh, a lot of the EMPs were sort of read the riot act by their investors um, saying that you're not generating enough cash flow, you're not returning cash to shareholders, um, you're not doing buybacks, you're 
not doing dividends. So they've all changed their mentality to where any uptick in the commodity price is probably going to go to reducing debt, paying paying shareholders a dividend or buying back stock. Um, so even though the commodity price here has ticked up and you know, maybe it ticks even higher and we get up into the high 40s or 50s, I really don't think we're gonna see a lot of, um, a lot of increased activity from the EMPs. And that's kind of the, the bummer, I guess, for the, for the sector, at least for now. Um, but we can feel comfortable that we know there's a, a certain level of activity that's probably sustainable um, down to probably $35 a barrel. Uh, and I say that because all of these plans that the EMPs are doing right now, everything of increasing in the back half of this year and increasing 10 to 15% from the second half run rate in 2021 was all kind of predicated on $35 oil. And here we are today, we're just under 45 on the 2021 strip. Um, so there's quite a bit of breathing room between kind of where that strip is and, and what a level that would probably cause uh, further declines in activity. So I can stop there um, and, and, and pass it on and, and happy to take questions uh, later on. Great, much appreciate it. Wes, we'll let you take it away from there. Let us know what you see um, in your marketplace and then we'll hand it over to Thomas to give us a little bit and then we'll have some Q&A. Yes, I appreciate it guys. Uh, you know, I, I can't agree more with, with all the, the comments from Mark. Um, you know, I used to work, uh, you know, for one of the largest oil field service companies and you know, so, so what I want to do here is just take what, what he was commenting on in the, the oil and gas market, the global economics, um, you know, driving that, and then apply it more to our industry, the rail car, the equipment, the decisions that they make, uh, you know, for that equipment. And so, uh, you know, as, as he's talking about the, the level of production that we should start to see come up. Uh, what does that mean for our industry? What does it mean for the railroads? What does it mean for the car owners? Well, you know, in, in the first downturn in 2015, 2016, a lot of the, the sand was being moved by rail from the, you know, the upper Midwest into markets in South Texas, uh, West Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Colorado, North Dakota, and even in the Northeast. Uh, the Northeast has, you know, another mode of of um, you know barge and, and that's uh, you know a very good option for shippers but a lot of the rail equipment was built to support that growth and the demand in in those markets in texas the permian specific uh you know we saw the pricing wars uh before you know we're we're currently experiencing that now but all of that equipment i say all of it a lot of that equipment was uh brought online and built to, to haul all the sand into Texas and, and those markets. And now, um, you know, these companies, they go through, through a major decline in the, in the price of oil. Um, they can't, you know, give the dividends to their shareholders as, as Mark was speaking to. And, and now, um, you know, now you've got all this equipment that um, you, you have to move cars and, and the sand companies start drilling and, and finding new sources of sand uh, locations near, uh, you know, near West Texas, where where all the drilling activity is going, and and that essentially eliminates the need for the rail car. And so, going back to Mark talking about, you know, we should see us coming out of the 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 global, um, you know, pressure that we we've, we've seen on this market. 
Uh, I don't know that that really changes much as it relates to the rail car and the equipment. Uh, you know, anything that that happens, um, you know, in the next few months, all the sand will be sourced from these local mines. So I don't see the equipment getting put back in service. Um, you know, you've got you know, 172,000 rail cars right now in uh, empty storage as it relates to the covered hopper market. And a lot of those covered hoppers, you know, are designed to move frac sand. And so uh, I just think there's a lot of pressure, um, you know, that's gonna be on the oil and gas companies. You know, you've got the dynamics have changed over the last six to seven years with sands being sourced much closer to the activity where you don't need, you know, the, the rail car now. Um, so I think it is a big problem, um, you know, that the industry has to face. There's, there's a lot of new equipment out there. You know, the, the age on some of these cars, uh, you've got in the, the zero to 10 year bucket, there's 185,000 covered hoppers. In the 11 to 20 year bucket, there's 124,000. And so these cars are, you know, 40 to be around for a while assets they're going to industry got to figure out what they you know the industry's got to figure out what they you know are going to do with them great thomas we'll bring you up now your company shale rail obviously derived its name from the marcel shale play in the northeast area how would you like to add to the comment i mean Obviously, I'm familiar with your geographic territory, what has happened there. It started off as absolutely nothing, exploded, and now we're in a situation or the place you're in right now. You know, do you want to offer some comments on that first and then lead your way into what's currently going on in the area to Marcellus play, Utica play, and how this all relates to, you know, what's going on in the sand industry? Good morning. Thanks, John. Yeah, what the frack happened? Um, to piggyback off of some of Wes's comments, I believe that the locally sourced sand has had a major impact on the need for those 3250s and those covered hoppers that were maybe overbuilt as we look back. But one of the quick questions I have before I dig into the to the Marcellus is that Wes, being that you have this picture down south, do we think that maybe the, the Brady Browns uh, that have been locally discovered near these plays, is it a lesser quality sand? We know that the price points might be lower, but will that have an impact over time on the uh, production uh, goals that, that these wells have? That's the million dollar question, Thomas. Uh, you know, we've all been you know, trying to figure that out. And I'll, I'll tell you that you may get a different answer depending on who you're talking to. Uh, you know, if you're talking to uh, an EMP that, uh, you know, is focused on, you know, uh, lots of production and, and flipping and selling their well, they're gonna probably tell you that, no, it, it, it's not a lower quality. Uh, if you're talking to one that has you know, plans to, to protect their assets and their wells over a 40 year period, they're gonna be more inclined to use a higher quality Northern White uh, product. But, but I will tell you that, um, you know, the shift to the, the regional sand uh, was dramatic. Uh, you, you see very little Northern White sand being sourced in, even before the pricing war uh, hit months ago. And so uh, I, I do think, 
that time will tell, but, but as it stands today, uh, I believe that most of those EMPs are focused on cost and, and it is, you know, 50 to $60 a ton cheaper to get sand, you know, from the local area than, than railing it in. And so I do believe that they will uh, stick with that trend unless, you know, they, they start having wells flush out or, or the results just aren't there long term. Well, that's an interesting comment, and I guess we'll have to wait and see how these refracts go with a lot of these uh, second and third fracks. Um, thanks, Wes. So jumping into the Northeast, um, when I say the Northeast, I think it ranges from, we'll call it central eastern Ohio, all the way over to the eastern part of Pennsylvania. And we all know, have heard about the uh, Shell Cracker plant in Minaka, which is in a sweet spot for western PA. Um, and there's kind of a transition. The further east you go from the northeastern part of Pennsylvania west into the Utica, we have a transformation from dry gas to uh, sweet, sweet gas and then ultimately some, some crude as well. So where we sit in the northeast where shale rail sits is predominantly dry gas, 97, 98% methane, very high quality gas. And we have the luxury maybe of being uh, predominantly a rail served uh, inbound from a frac sand standpoint. Uh, we don't have rivers to barge like Pittsburgh and we don't have any local uh, geological formations that have been discovered yet that could produce a uh, regional threat uh, to the Ottawa sand belt. Um, primarily we are still seeing the Norfolk Southern and the CSX uh, deliver I'd say almost 100% of the inbound sand. So that is a unique perspective for us here in the northeastern corner of Pennsylvania, where there's just less competition uh, due to the geographic nature of, of where we're located. So, what, what, so we've heard about the West's sand, we heard about Thomas's sand, and we heard Mark talk about pricing. So let's you know, go with the, the simple question is what, you know, we're looking at what, three companies now that have declared bankruptcy. If you had to narrow it down and it's open question to all of you, what would you say has been the main driving force behind these companies not being able to pull through? Um, I'll I can, hop in uh, there and I, I'd probably yield to Mark but I think it's a much different world from $120 to $125 a barrel oil to the current market conditions we're sitting in now. Yeah, um, so we, we covered all of those companies um, and they are, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, all but uh, US Silicon Smart Sand are, uh, are going through restructuring. Um, and you know, even US Silica, while we don't see uh, any kind of near-term um, near-term issue, uh, when they do kind of get up against their, um, their maturity, uh, they've got over a billion dollars of debt. Um, you know, we, it could be, it could be a challenge for them to, to refinance that or, or, or sort of manage that maturity, but that's a number of years away. Um, part of the problem is all these companies did have a lot of debt. Um, they're, they were in growth mode and, um, they were, you know, building their business on 
20 to $30 a ton margins. And now because of everything Wes was talking about with uh, locally sourced sand, um, the assets that they have in, uh, in Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, all those Northern white assets are kind of idle. And, and kind of zombie assets to some extent. Uh, and they were also at the same time building for this regional growth uh, in West Texas. Everybody acquired assets uh, and, and put capital in and financed it with debt. And now um, the market has, has really come down. They were building, as I said, those, those plants on 20 plus dollar margins. Uh, that was the plan. And you know, now those margins are single digit. Um, and, and even maybe break even in some cases, it kind of depends on what your regional, um, your regional proximity is within the basin. Um, so that's really what's happened. And, you know, U.S. Silica is in a unique position, as was Covia, uh, with having an industrial business that helps temp temper sort of the, the decline in the oil and gas market. Um, but there was just too much debt over a Covia. Mark, do you think the debt load that a lot of these uh, supers were carrying were predominantly connected to the uh, the amount of rail cars that they had under lease and, and ownership? You know, I think of that as just another obligation. Um, you know, the, the debt is is an obligation that you have to meet with interest payments and the, the lease is another kind of debt that you have to meet with, with lease payments. Um, I don't think that they were borrowing against the rail cars that they have. I mean, some of them do own their own rail cars, if that if that's what you're mentioning. Um, but you know, I, I don't think those two were sort of um, interrelated per se. Well, we have heard that there are some very flexible uh, leasing companies out there that have worked closely with the market in order to uh, get these cars repurposed or uh, repositioned. Uh, but from from what we understood up here in the northeastern part of the the play. A lot of these companies were over leveraged and long on cars, uh, certainly with the, re the reduction uh, in production uh, meant that they didn't need quite as many cars in the fleet and make those cars turn quite as many times a month. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, if you go back to U.S. Silica's second quarter call, which they, they had the other day, um, you know, they've got about 7,000 rail cars and um, forget the number. It's a, it's a large number that's in storage. Um, but anyhow, they they talked about working with their leasing, um, their leasing providers and trying to figure out who's going to be the, the good partner for them long-term. And it's, that's sort of the nice way to say um, who's going to give us the best break on, uh, on extending right. our leasing. Yeah. One of the things I want to add to that, uh, Thomas, as you were asking that question, it got my brain spinning, you know, a lot of the, the rail, roads are very focused on uh, you know precision scheduled railroading at the moment they are focused on uh, you know the transit time you know and their and their train velocities and so uh, one one thing that I've always um, you know heard and this this doesn't necessarily apply to the Northeast but it's, it's primarily for the US um, you know as a whole but a one mile per hour decrease in, in train speed equals about 50,000 less cars that you need across the country. And so, um, you know, a two mile per hour equals 100,000 cars less that you need, you know, from a demand perspective. And so, uh, you know, as we see all the challenges in the frac sand industry 
as it sits today. And we know the direction that the railroads are going. Uh, they're always focused on speeding up their network, uh, maximizing the efficiencies to precision scheduled railroading. I think the problem could get worse when you really look at the equipment that is used for the frac sand industry. So, um, you know, that's something that is, is likely, you know, six to 12 to 18 months down the line, but I don't see it getting better unless something dramatic changes, like going a, a major shift back to Northern white versus the regional uh, sand. That's a great point about the uh, collateral damage, if you will, by the railroads improving their velocity and transit times. Uh, that has happened relatively quickly over the last year thereabouts. And we all know these car leasing deals are, you know, three to five years. So I don't think the, the users of the cars uh, first believed that the velocities would improve. And now that they have, they find themselves long on cars which is a gift and a curse. I guess you're getting better turn times and cycles on your, on your car utilization, but you have too many cars in your portfolio. Yeah. And, and, you know, that gets extended, you know, past the three to five year lease term to the actual car owner, you know, uh, some of these large car manufacturers or the large banks that actually own that asset, you know, what do they do with it? Uh, you know, it's a five to 10 year asset, uh, or five to 10 year, you know, um, age car on a 40 year asset. So I think it, it just presents a lot of problems for the industry as we move forward. Okay, one question that I've received here is, obviously we're in an election year. What are the ramifications of the upcoming election? How could this possibly impact the future of Fracking, oil, energy, markets, you know, it's a pretty broad question, I suppose, but it is an election year. We somewhat have a known and a totally unknown. Um, I don't think it really matters on the candidates, really either you're pro-energy or completely against energy. And what would you, your take be on it? Well, I'll say, um, you know, from my perspective, any, any kind of... Um, imposition of of rules as it relates to to us land um, is probably going to be fairly limited mainly because um, the federal government really can only impose stuff on federal land and federal land is a very small share of all the oil and gas activity that happens um, certainly in the gulf of mexico it's much larger but that's you know not what's driving all of the market right now um, so really i think that the the ability to do something would be somewhat limited. Um, I think the, the issue uh, for the energy markets, more importantly, is what happens with policy uh, for Iran and policy for Venezuela, two very large uh, global producers that are, you know, hampered by sanctions and, and, uh, and sort of political turmoil. So um, to me, that's, that's really the biggest factor. Mark Thomas, would you like to add anything? Sure. Uh, I, I do believe uh, there is a, a uh, little cloak of chaos happening uh, inside the political sphere around energy and power generation. I think there's a bigger global picture as it relates to our energy independence 
uh, as as Mark related or spoke to earlier about the the war that had kind of been started by OPEC and and maybe continues to to be played. Um, I think here in the northeastern part of the state, we have seen a large conversion, or actually not conversion, uh, but new permits for natural gas uh, fired power plants. And that type of power generation, I think, is only going to continue to grow as we move away from coal and nuclear, uh, that natural gas can fill that gap. So I think that that's great. We'll have the reliance and the commitment to produce that natural gas to fire these power plants uh, here in the Northeast. I, again, I know we have some unique elements uh, such as New England uh, being a very uh, large consumer uh, demographic, but uh, pipelines are having a hard time getting through New York and supplying New England with gas. So we have a lot of trucks coming into our region to bring gas back to New England. And I, I hope that, you know, that doesn't become more politicized, but it absolutely is through the state of New York. And uh, I think there's a lot of folks right now looking at uh, LNG by rail to see what kind of value that can bring both to the domestic and the export markets. Wes? Uh, I don't have much more to add there. I think Thomas, uh, you know, did a really good job of recapping how you know, how the, the political environment, uh, you know, will drive the, the Northeast region and, and obviously Mark's comments were spot on as well. So I think I'm good there. Thomas, I'll open up to you to any other questions. And I have a few more questions from the board of directors I'll get to after you might cover them. Okay. Uh, well, you know, sitting here in the Northeast, uh, we've seen a big conversion from pneumatic uh, trailers to containerized fracks. And a lot of that is because here in the Northeast, we have much smaller well pads. So it, there's a big utilization and efficiency factor. Uh, there's also been a large spend on those assets. And we've seen companies like High Crush uh, developed their own program and containers. We've seen U.S. Silica purchase Sandbox and really try to own that final mile. Uh, I know Wes has a lot of background in not just the procurement of sand, but ultimately the final mile delivery and then the pumping of that sand. How much, Wes, do you think that those assets, similar to the rail car assets, are weighing in on uh, the success or the selection maybe of either a sand supplier and or pressure pumper? That's a, uh, you know, really good question. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, there's some pressure with just what's going on in the industry for that last mile equipment. Uh, I don't think it's gonna be quite as much pressure as you're gonna see on the rail car. Uh, and, and, and the reason I'm saying that is, if there's a frack going on, there is, there, there has to be, you know, a solution on the pad, whether it's a box, whether it's silos, you name it. Um, you know, as we deliver sand, uh, before it gets into that last mile mode, you're looking at putting it in a rail car or in a barge. And so I think um, overall demand will, you know, apply pressure to both, but I do think that, you know, globally, 
uh, or, or I say nationally, I do think that, um, you know, the, the rail car is going to be hurt more than the last mile equipment, but I do think they're both going to be under pressure. Um, you've seen in the past, uh, it's a, it's a game of tug of war between the EMP, the service company and, and the sand supplier. And, uh, you know, I think they all want to gain control and, and have the ball in their court in, in this supply chain game that they play. Um, and, and there's times where one has more leverage than the other, but, but I do think, um, you know, the, the last mile equipment, uh, in the Northeast, particularly with, as you said, with the, with the short, you know, the smaller pads, you know, the boxes probably will, um, you know, have a, a good, uh, longevity, uh, period. I think that, uh, you've seen a number of the sand companies invest into those. You've seen some of the service companies invest into them. Um, I'm not saying that they're the best solution, but I do think that they work very well for the pads and, and the geographies in the Northeast. Agree. I'm gonna ask a question here that a little bit disadvantaged if you weren't at a NEARS conference way back in 2008 to 2010, but back then we did a very specialized and focused conference that was really based upon fracking. And during this conference, we've had, you know, Penn State professors, we had every major railroad that was serving the area come and speak to us. And we had sand providers as well. So we've, we've learned now just through this podcast that, well, part of the reason is, to, you know, way back in 2008, frac sand could only really come from one place if you wanted the really good stuff. And that's what everybody wanted. But then the energy part of it, the fracking part of it, pretty much at that point in time, everybody said, you know, this is a hundred year play longer. It's going to be booming for the first 25 plus years of that time. Now we know energy prices, you know, went down and things have changed. But if you had a look on a timeline, where are we at in the shale play, you know, across the board, you know, are we just like completely nearing bust or are we somewhere in between boom and bust or, you know, where do you, you know, what your crystal ball, where do you, where, where are we at as far as in the whole fracking terms of things across all the plays, but also, you know, what do you foresee of the future? Is there going to be more drill, you know, is drilling going to continue on? Like Tom said, there's more permits being issued. Are we going to get through, you know, some states that are just so anti-fracking, but will they realize there is a definitely an advantage to this? Or again, I'm asking this as a crystal ball prediction for you. I, I get that. But going back to our conference where everybody was gung-ho 2008, 2010, this is never going to end. Everybody's going to get rich and this is the best thing ever to sort of where we're sitting watching companies go out of business or file for bankruptcy and market has really changed. I'll let all of you take a crack at it. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll comment first. I guess um, the, the thought that we have, uh, and it has to do with a little bit of what I mentioned earlier, where you know the EMPs are gonna sort of maintain their production and, and return excess cash to, to 
reduce debt or to, to shareholders. Uh, we really view this industry as mature at this point. Um, so you're really not going to see a lot of growth, but, but it's going to be pretty steady and hopefully less volatile. Um, and that's something that's, that's a positive, the, the lower volatility. It just allows the industry to plan more, become more efficient, um, and hopefully kind of wring more, more value out of, out of all the services that they're providing. Um, so that's kind of how we see it. I don't think there's a new resource um, that's going to be unlocked. Um, you know, there was some activity in the power River Basin uh, earlier on, and, and that's kind of dried up now that the commodity price has gone down. So really, the way we think about it is you've got a, a main oil basin in the Permian, and that's where the, the oil is going to be coming from, the incremental activity. And then as you look at the gas markets, you know, it's going to be the Northeast that continues to dominate, and maybe some of the Haynesville. Um, but outside of that, you don't get a lot of activity. The problem with, you know, if there's a real strong price signal for the Northeast, those wells are so productive. Um, that the amount of rigs and, and crews and everything that we need to add to get production up is not going to be a whole lot. Um, the decline base is also pretty shallow now that we've got so many years of production. What happens with shale production is it declines very quickly in the first year and the second and third year, but then it shallows out and it actually declines at a very, very small pace. Um, so the amount of maintenance that's required to kind of offset that decline is, is pretty low once you've got a big wedge, which we kind of do in the Northeast now. Wes? Yeah, I agree with Mark there. Uh, you know, one, one thing that, um, you know, I think uh, the Haynesville, or yeah, uh, the Haynesville is a good market because it's close to, um, you know, all the Gulf refineries, just, just like, um, you know, the, the market in, in the Utica and Marcellus, the proximity to get over to the, to the East Coast and, and the refineries there. Um, I, I do think that long term, those will be, you know, steady plays. There's there's plenty of equipment and, and resources in this industry now. Uh, if we see a major uptick in, in one, uh, you, you know, you, you deploy the assets and, and they can they can start up an operation pretty quickly. Um, the Permian will be the, the main source uh, from a, a crude perspective uh, and, you know, Going back to uh, the, the car and the equipment, uh, I think that you know something dramatic has to change there, uh, and and things can change quickly in the Permian. Uh, you know, you could see a lot more production coming online, but I don't know that that really, you know, signals a lot of demand for the the rail equipment and the railroad service uh, as as it sits today. Um, so yeah, that that's what I have to add. Thomas. I concur. I, I believe here in our little pocket of the world, uh, they have been doing more with less. Um, these, these wells are just prolific. I've been told we're sitting on, you know, almost two X, uh, what Saudi Arabia sits on, on in oil we have in the Northeast with gas. Uh, that's quite a prolific play. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but that's what we've been told. And, I think it's astonishing to see over the last couple of years, the reduction in the rig count, but the same amount of wells being completed uh, year over year. Okay, we have a couple minutes left here, Thomas, if you have any more questions, um, happy to have you ask them. And if not, then we'll start moving towards wrapping up. 
So I want to I want to make sure that we stay on the uh, what the frack happened. I know that this is probably the the pessimistic and the cynical side of it, um, and I want to ask uh, Wes and Mark where where if at all in this discussion do we think that uh, the railroads and their pricing structure uh, may allow these industries to flow a little bit more fluidly, or do we think that it's going to be more of a uh, con constrictive uh, role that the railroads will play in this? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I had a, uh, I had the best seat in the house when all this was going on, you know, at Halliburton. And, uh, you know, as, as things changed in the, the global supply and, uh, you know, demand market for, for oil and gas, the railroads, um, you know, they, they played a, a huge part in, you know, the success of the industry. Um, as, as the uh, price of oil was, was continuing to increase, uh, the railroads were supportive in, in helping these companies in this industry grow. But as it, as the price fell uh, dramatically and, and very sharp, you didn't see the, the price of, you know, the, the rail freight decline at the same rate. Uh, most of the time, you know, it just stayed flat and, and that was, you know, the best you could do. You did see, you know, activity and, and, and support um, in, in smaller cases, but, you know, across the board, you didn't see the pricing support from the rail industry. And I think that's what got us into this, this problem potentially is, you know, the EMPs needed a way to, you know, produce at a lower cost. The sand companies were all, primarily captive to the northern, you know, Midwest, and, and they knew that they had to have an alternative option. So you see all the investments being put in in the Permian, um, you know, for, for sand mines there. Uh, in the uh, Eagleford, uh, you saw a lot of sand mines pop up there. In the scoop and the stack, you also saw it. And still, I, I think that um, when you talk about what the frack happened, I do think the railroads, uh, you know, had a, had a lot to do with it, but also think that the industry was very undisciplined and, uh, you know, it was a constant fight, uh, between the, the EMP, the service company, the sand company on who was going to own, you know, the, the pricing in that supply chain. And so cars were being double booked sand mines were being, you know, the, the same production was, was, uh, you know, being booked when these mines were being developed. And so now you're, now we're in a spot where, you know, you've got all these assets and all these resources and, and the demand's not there. The, the landscape has changed. And, and then when you look at the global economics that we were talking about earlier, that has a big impact. When you talk about what the railroads initiatives are doing, uh, you know, moving forward, that's going to continue to to add to it. So there's a lot of of work to be done in, in this market, and um, you know, I think knowing what's in the rearview mirror will help us 
as an industry, make better decisions moving forward, uh, collaborate on, on strategies that, that work across the board. I don't, I don't know that I have anything, anything to add to, add to that. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Well, it does, right? And it's hard for the railroad to talk about uh, revenue reductions or uh, reductions in their uh, contributions per unit when transportation is definitely uh, the, the heaviest cost in that whole supply chain. And I, I feel like going back to that political sphere and that question uh, earlier, John, I think, you know, the, the decline or eradication of coal uh, the railroads were super happy to have frac sand come along. I don't know if all railroads understood what the end game was uh, when we were just getting this thing kicked off. But over the last couple of years, to Wes's point, you know, we hear more and more that uh, everybody has had to take dilution across the board. But I have not heard too much about the rail rates uh, being reduced as well. It's greatly appreciate it. If anybody has anything they want to say for closing comments, by all means, please do so. If everybody's good, we will end this podcast. And again, I greatly appreciate everyone's time. Thanks very much for Well, the only thing I would add, add to that, John. Yes, thank you, John. I, I think that, uh, you know, being in this industry now for, for just over a decade, having Marcellus Shale kind of land on us, uh, we're still very optimistic about the future of what uh, frac sand and natural gas can bring to our economies here in the in the northeastern part of the state. Uh, we're excited about what lies ahead and to Wes's point I hope that we are reflecting on where we just came from over the last 24 months in this very volatile situation. Uh, I think there there really does need to be some collaboration. Um, this is not a cash cow and we saw what can happen when it's treated as such and it would be nice to find a little bit steadier pace and and knock off the uh the peaks and valleys a little bit yeah uh i want to add one positive note as we go out you know thomas mentioned earlier you know the the geographies and the landscape in in as it pertains to the northeast and i do think that um you know one geography that can survive uh from this is the northeast because the the natural gas play proximity to, you know, the refineries, but you, you really, you don't have the, the long-term threat of local sand. So, so you, you know, the, what rail equipment is out there can and needs to be deployed, you know, to support that region. You do have, um, you know, barge that, that can compete, but, you know, for a shipper, um, it's nice to have options to keep costs low and competitive. But I do think as you as you look at the Northeast, it, it will be the one that, that does survive when you look at rail uh, transportation, rail equipment uh, to, to bring in sand into that region. Wes, the other thing I'd throw in there to piggyback off of that is I think the Northeast has done a great job utilizing the short lines to create uh, better access into uh, those those sweet spots. Agreed. You have been listening to a NEARS podcast. For all information on NEARS and our upcoming conference, which is going to be virtual but broadcast live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, please visit us at nears.org. The dates are September 21st through September 25th. 
If you'd like to reach out to our speakers today, you can reach Mark Bianchi at Mark, M-A-R-C dot B-I-A-N-C-H-I at Cowan, C-O-W-E-N dot com. Wes Atkins at W-E-S dot A-D-K-I-N-S at U-S Rail and Logistics dot com. U-S-R-A-I-L-A-N-D-L-O-G-I-S-T-I-C-S dot com. And Thomas Coleman at Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at rail, R-A-I-L, strong, S-T-R-O-N-G, dot com. That's Thomas at railstrong, dot com. Once again, this is your producer, John Myers, chair of the Nears Marketing Committee, signing off. Thank you for joining us for the Nears What the Frack podcast. <laughs>